Several years ago, while pastoring in Nashville, we had a young family come join our congregation. He was a bank executive. Not long after they had moved for him to take this job, I'd heard that he, um, he lost his job. And so I went by their home to speak to them and uh, trying to, you know, be positive, pump him up. You know, I said, well, Fred, you know, there will be another job for you. And he said, you don't understand. He said, we had to declare bankruptcy. And bankruptcy disqualifies you from working in a bank. Nobody wants to deal with a loan officer who can't manage his own loans. And it turns out his uh, wife had spent inordinate inordinate amount of money on items that hadn't even been used, gifts that were wrapped that hadn't been given, clothes that still had tags. And the accumulated bills had just finally pushed them under, and now he was disqualified from ever... Uh, pursuing his career again. Now, when he explained to me what it meant to be disqualified as a banker by bankruptcy, I got it. But something I have a hard time translating into my experience in 2021 is how the cross disqualified Jesus to be the Messiah. And yet, this is very clear as we read throughout the New Testament. The cross somehow took Jesus and excluded him by all standards. By all standards, there's no way he could be the Messiah. Cursed is one who hangs on a tree. Uh, Paul talks about, uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Did he have to say that? Because the gospel of a crucified Messiah was shameful. Really, it is the shame. We always think of the pain. And of course, Mel Gibson's movie a few years ago uh, showed us in graphic detail what, what the pain must have been like. But it is really the shame. It is the shame that makes it so uh, difficult. The, uh, the writer of Hebrews says... He endured the cross and scorned the shame. It's two parts. It's pain and it's shame. And the shame was designed to do nothing less than to dehumanize. To take someone and to make them less than human. To make, take someone and make them subhuman. So that uh, we, we would have no sympathy for them so that they wouldn't even be considered a part of the world in which we live. We see this in wars. It's happened in, in all wars where we take the enemy and we come up with slang, derogatory terms so that we don't have to describe the enemy as other men, other women. We can just simply describe them by the, the, the term of derision that we would use. We dehumanize them. Howard Thurman tells a story when he was a young boy of two girls. Uh, uh, Howard Thurman was African-American. He tells of a young white girl and a young black girl. And 
little white girl went into her mother's bedroom and got a hat pin and uh, kind of snuck up on her other friend and stuck her with it. And, of course, she yelled out, that hurt. And uh, the little girl looked at her friend and said, that didn't hurt you. You don't feel pain. Somewhere she had been taught that someone with a different skin color was less than human. They don't even feel any pain. And so that's what crucifixion was designed to do, to, to put Jesus or any other victim in a position of being considered less than human. Now, how did that happen? There's no pretty way to describe this. If you think of the crucifixion as an uh, Italian master uh, painting with vibrant colors and great detail, in almost all those paintings, there's going to be a very uh, modest and strategic cloth provided for Jesus to hide his nakedness. No such thing in the ancient world. No, everybody was, was exposed to the public, to the elements, and by the time they're agony had come to an end. They are sunburned. They're covered in filth. The flies are swarming. Birds have, if it's lasted long enough, birds have come and begun to taste the appetizer. It's dehumanizing. The location, the location was designed to humanize. It was always in a, in a public place. You notice from the passage of scripture just how uh, the people are interacting with Jesus. It was designed for that. The public has their script to play. Oh, look at him. He's going to tear the temple down and rebuild it back in three days. He can't even come down. Jesus, come down. They're taunting him and tempting him. It is their role to play to deride him and to render him as unworthy of human Sympathy. There is no dignity. And of course, it's typically, Jesus dies rather quickly for a crucifixion. It typically takes a day or two or three. And by the time the end has come, the person who's being crucified is delirious with dehydration and with pain. They beg for something to drink. They they curse the day they were born. They curse everybody who was around them, which you can see in this version it says, and those who were crucified with him uh, reviled him. They're cursing everybody they can, they can see. Everybody they can see. And many times before it was over, the person would beg to be executed. One of the lowest places a person can get just go ahead and put me out of my misery. It wiped out their humanity. Roman citizens could not be crucified, not because it inflicted too much pain, but because it was so degrading that it would reflect on the empire. You don't want one of your citizens dying this way because if it could happen to any Roman, it could happen to all Romans. So we, we will not let one of our citizens die this way, lest it pull us down. It was actually considered obscene to talk about in polite company. 
It would be like uh, if somebody came to your Christmas party and started dropping obscenity bombs uh, around the punch bowl uh, to raise the issue of crucifixion in polite company isn't going to happen. And so there in this scene where Jesus is being dehumanized, where the people are making fun of him, there is a contingent of the Roman guard led by a centurion. Centurions were the battle-hardened core of the Roman army. Typically, a centurion entered as an enlisted person, and it took 15 to 20 years to get to the rank of centurion. That's a lot of drills, a lot of marching, a lot of battles, a lot of hurting people who don't want to move forward and moving them forward. It is being on the battlefield and listening to friend and foe alike plead for water, call for help, cry for their mothers. This is a man who has seen everything. This is a man who couldn't be shocked and probably a person who had very little uh, innate sympathy left in him. And when Jesus died, he looks and he says, surely this man was God's son. I don't know if you always read the meditation text at the top of the first page of the printed order of worship, but D.M. Bailey says, the most remarkable fact in the whole whole history of religious thought is this is that when early Christians looked back and pondered on the crucifixion, it made them think of the redeeming love of God. This terrible, dehumanizing event. And people looked at it and thought, God loves me. And that's what happens to the centurion here. He looks at it and he recognizes that somehow in this most horrible of horrible moments, the love of God has been revealed. Typically, Mark isn't a favorite of Gospels. People usually choose something like Matthew because it's got the Sermon on the Mount or John because it's so poetic. But Mark is an interesting Gospel. And while you might skip over it, there is a a, uh, a way that Mark tells the story of Jesus that's very interesting. Throughout the gospel, when someone confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, throughout the gospel, Jesus rebukes them and tells them to be quiet. The demons in the the man called Legion, we know who you are, you holy boy of God, and he commands them to come out and be silent. Happens all the time. Peter, In Matthew, he gets blessed for saying it, but in Mark, he says, you are the Christ of God. And Jesus rebukes him. It's a hard word. Be muzzled like a dog, Peter. Put a muzzle on it. Don't tell anybody. Now, some people have theorized that Jesus did that because he knew he wasn't really a divine Messiah. No, that's not it. Because when you get to this place, And when the centurion for the first time confesses Jesus as God's son, nobody says, be quiet. 
The reason Jesus had silenced everybody until this moment was because no one understood what it meant. They had all their preconceived ideas, but now on the cross it has been revealed. He has endured the cross and he has scorned the shame and he has died in some way for us. And now it can be said without any any hesitation, now we understand this is God's son. And so the statement of the centurion stands, no one no one silences him. In order to save us, Jesus had to be divine because there are none of us that are capable of saving ourselves or saving each other. But in order for what he does to save us, he had to be one of us. And it is on the cross that he reveals that he has come to the place where he is fully invested fully invested in what it means to be human. He understands what it means to feel shame, endure pain. He understands what it's like to see the sky and feel as if it is hardened against his prayers. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Algerian writer Albert Camus said that in order to be Fully human, he had to experience what it's like to be God-forsaken. And he did. Surely this man, surely this man was, is the Son of God. You know, we can spend a lifetime trying to understand it. And maybe the best thing to do is just to claim it. It was for me that he died upon the tree, that he carried the curse and sets us free. Shall we pray together? Oh God, we scarce can understand how or why But we're thankful that you sent your son and that Christ came and that he chose the cross for us. Oh God, help us to to live in its redeeming power all our days. For we ask it in the name of the one who died there, Jesus, your son. Amen.